All right, would you please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7? We've been studying the seventh chapter of Luke now uh, for a few weeks. And uh, just as kind of a way of reminder, the first uh, nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, the Gospel of Luke is Luke telling the story of how God is redeeming his people. That ultimately is what Luke is about. God is redeeming his people. Now, how does he do that? Well, he does it through this man, Jesus. And so the first third of the Gospel of Luke, the first nine chapters or so, Luke is kind of focusing on the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? After all, it's important that we know who he is. If he's the one that God is using and sending to redeem his people, we, we ought to know something about him. And so that question kind of overrides, it's kind of the umbrella for the first nine chapters, but it especially comes into focus in chapter 7. It really is the central question that Luke is trying to answer, to flesh out. We've seen already in chapter 7 that Jesus is one who possesses supernatural authority. We saw this in the story of the Roman centurion, for instance, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The Roman centurion recognized that Jesus' authority was so great that Jesus could heal his sick servant without even coming to the house, much less enter in and, and touch the servant or, or, or speak some word over the servant or, or do some kind of, 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 of superstitious rite or practice. That Jesus could even still down the street or in another part of town just speak the word of divine healing and the servant would be healed. And that's exactly what happened. In verses 11 through 17, we also see Jesus' supernatural authority demonstrated when he raised the widow's son from the dead. He simply commanded the young man to arise and the young man came back to life. He sat up and he lived again. So in those two instances, Jesus showed supernatural authority. He his authority paralleled God's own authority. Jesus is able to do the very things that God is able to do. And because of that authority, then Jesus is distinguished from other men. He is like us. He is a human being like us in every way, except for sin. But at the same time, he, he is in a category that really belongs to God. So Jesus is one who possesses supernatural authority. Who is Jesus? He's also the one who is to come. He's the Messiah. We saw that in the question that John the Baptist posed about Jesus in verses 18 to 35. John had begun to have some doubts that maybe Jesus was actually the Messiah. And so he sent some disciples to, to pose that very question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And so Jesus responds to John's questions not by saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, but pointing back to Old Testament prophecy. And reminding John of what the Messiah was going to do when he came. The Messiah would come and he would, he would give sight to the blind. He would open the ears of the deaf. He would raise the dead. He would heal the sick. The lame would walk. And so by pointing to these very things in his own life and ministry, Jesus was answering John's question. Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come. I am doing the very things that the prophets prophesied the Messiah would do. And so to these accounts, Luke adds another one. Again, fleshing out this question, answering this question, who is Jesus? In the passage that we're studying this morning, the end of chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, 
will discover that Jesus is one who forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Let's read the passage. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with, with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So this is now Jesus speaking. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's hard when we're going through narrative to actually break it up into an outline. I've got something for the PowerPoint overhead, but I'm just going to work through the passage. And then as we get to the end, we'll make some, some very basic application. But I think it's very obvious this is a well-loved story, and we can see ourselves in this story. The passage begins with a Pharisee inviting Jesus to his home for dinner. And this would have been a festive meal, uh, perhaps a banquet of some kind, this would have been common to do on the Sabbath day. It would have been uh, custom to go to the synagogue in the morning for instruction and worship at the synagogue. And then afterward, it would have been common to have a, a lunch afterwards. Uh, it could have been that. It could have been another Jewish holiday or special occasion. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a, a banquet type. It is a feast that, that this Pharisee has invited Jesus to at his own home. And, and because of this, then, Jesus is an honored guest in the Pharisee's house. That might seem a little unusual to us because we know of the of the tension of the thick of the friction of the opposition that exists between the Pharisees and Jesus. The the Pharisees harbored great animosity toward Jesus. We know that by reading the entire gospel story. But at this point in the narrative, the Pharisees are still really just trying to figure Jesus out. So certainly they are curious about Jesus. In chapter five, verse seventeen, Luke notes that the Pharisees had sent representatives from all over the region, from the entire region of Galilee and Judea, to come and to observe Jesus and to evaluate his teaching. And based on their initial impressions, they are certainly skeptical about Jesus. They are growing critical of Jesus. They are putting Jesus to the test to determine more about him. Based on what we read in this passage, though, 
Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee that's given to us in verse 40, Simon reflects that sense of, of curiosity and skepticism about Jesus. We might think, again, because we're reading this with a fuller lens of the entire gospel story, we might think that Simon here is, is really opposed to Jesus, that he is, is acting hostily toward Jesus, but really it seems that he's skeptical, he's curious. There's tension here, but he's not outright hostile toward Jesus. There's, there's an interplay, there's an exchange between Simon and Jesus. Now, Simon was a Pharisee, and we know the Pharisees were a notable sect within Judaism. They were known for their piety toward God. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, which means separate or to separate. The Pharisees sought to separate themselves from the world. They wanted to be God's holy people. They took very seriously God's calling of Israel to be a holy people, to be a set-apart people, a people distinct from the rest of the nations of the world. And they believed that they could live as God's holy people by obeying God's law. And so they emphasized God's law. They emphasized studying the law, knowing the law so that they could do the law. They emphasized doing the law to its fullest degree, to its greatest extent. Initially, the Pharisaic movement may have had honorable motivations, but by Jesus' day, the Pharisees placed much more emphasis on traditional interpretations and wrote rituals that elevated the letter of the law while neglecting the spirit of the law. Those assumptions, the assumption of being a separate people, the assumption of obeying the law and and stringently practicing the law, really governed Simon's attitudes and reactions in this passage. And that's why when the sinful woman appears at the banquet in his home, he's surprised. There's something surprising about what she does. Luke notes in verse 37 that this woman was a sinner. He doesn't elaborate on the nature of her sin, but we assume based on the use of that word in the Gospels that it's very likely that her sin was sexual in nature, that she was either a prostitute or, or known for adultery. As a Pharisee, Simon would have seen a great moral chasm between this woman and himself. She is the sinner. She is an unholy and immoral woman, while he is a Pharisee. Holy, righteous, pious, moral, God-honoring. The contrast between these two individuals couldn't be greater. So why is this woman in Simon's house? And why is Jesus allowing her to minister to him? What a festive meal or a banquet like this, it was common for the host of this dinner to leave the front door open to his home. And uninvited guests could invite themselves in and hang out, hang around on the perimeter of the room, stand up against the wall. Sometimes it would be to overhear the conversation at the table. In a situation like this, maybe a, a young aspiring rabbi would want to come and overhear what these Pharisees were talking about and what they were the dialogue with Jesus, Jesus would have had a reputation by this point. So they may, they may have wanted to overhear the conversation. There are others, the very poor ones, that would have come in looking for food, hoping that there might be leftovers that could be distributed to them so that they would be able to have something to eat for the day. Well, neither of those two reasons are the reasons why the woman comes. That's not what she does. She's not curious about the conversation. 
She doesn't come in hopes of something to eat. Instead, she enters the home to show Jesus extreme displays of devotion. Verse 37 tells us that the woman is there because she knows that Jesus is there. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's home, she came. So this woman comes to Simon's house deliberately. She's not there by accident. She hasn't wandered in. She hasn't come for a different purpose. She comes because Jesus is there. And when she arrives, she begins to minister to Jesus. She begins to show him devotion in three ways. She first washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet. And then she anoints his feet with very expensive perfume. And she's able to do all of this because Jesus and the rest of the invited guests are reclining at table. That phrase appears a couple of different times. First in verse 37 in this passage. And in this time, in these kinds of meals, it would be common for a, uh, the invited guests to come and to sit, uh, really more lay down at a very low set table. The table would be a very lowered, very close to the ground. And those who are eating would lay on their side with their head near the table and kind of their feet angled outward, their body angled outward. So Jesus' feet are pointing toward the wall. All the guests' feet are pointing toward their wall while their head is close to the table where they can take with one hand and eat the food at the table. So this woman's not really creating a disruption. We kind of might think in our own mental image, you think about your family sitting down to a meal, this woman having to get under the table to get access to Jesus' feet. That would seem really awkward, really peculiar, right? But she's not disrupting anything. Jesus' feet are accessible, and so she has easy access to them. She comes and she does... Her thing, she ministers to Jesus. The scandalous thing here is really that she is washing and anointing his feet. Now, as in our own time, the feet are a pretty gross part of the body, right? And perhaps even in Jesus' time, well, not perhaps, it is, it was much grosser. You think about a culture that is very hot, where the footwear, shoe wear is going to be sandals, Right? And so you think of the sweaty feet. And then you think of the dusty roads, perhaps after a rain, the muddy roads and the, 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 the sweaty feet accumulating the dust and the dirt and having that caked over your feet. And then you think about the lack of sanitation and garbage out in the street and animals that are used for transportation, doing their business in the street. And having to walk through all of that. And we can see how nasty and how grimy and how gross the feet would be. And so it would be customary coming into a house to wash your feet before you especially sit down at the table to eat. For those who had means, the lowest ranking servant in the home would be tasked with this responsibility to wash the feet of those in the family. And that would be a very, again, gross thing to do. And you can remember... When Jesus at the Last Supper begins to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter objects because Jesus is not worthy to do this. It's a, it's a demeaning task. It's gross. The Lord of glory should not be doing this to his feet. But the woman here is essentially taking on the function of the lowest slave in the household. She, she humbles herself to this position and she washes Jesus' feet, which again, interestingly, have not already been washed since he's come into the house. We read that in verse 45. So this woman washes Jesus' feet. She washes them first with her tears. doesn't seem like this is necessarily her plan. She comes with the 
ointment with the aromatic oil to, uh, to anoint Jesus' feet with the sweet-smelling perfume. But in her emotion, she, she weeps. The, the word in the Greek is the tears indicate a, a strong uh, weeping, a crying lots, and the tears are falling, streaming to Jesus' feet, and she uses those to wash his feet. She, she lets down her hair and washes the feet, using it almost as a towel to, to clean his feet. As the tears are flowing down, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us why she is weeping. She is either broken over her sinfulness. Luke's identified her as a, sin, as a sinner. And she's got some kind of past. She has the weight and shame of some sin. And she could be weeping out of brokenness over her sinful convictions or over her sinful condition. She is convicted by her sin or she is weeping out of joy. Many times we cry when we are joyful. We hear good news. And we're overwhelmed by the joy and, and we weep in those moments. And so she could be overcome with great joy. In fact, we discover that Jesus has already forgiven her sins. And she seems to be overcome by, by great gratitude and great love for Jesus. This is a sign of, of devotion. Her weeping is, is probably her joyful response to what Jesus has done for her. So as the tears are flowing down on Jesus' feet, she lets her hair down, which is another scandalous thing. Jewish women always put their feet or their, their hair up. To let your hair down in public was a very scandalous thing. So she is letting down her hair as a sign of humility. She's humbling herself even to the point of scandalizing herself even more. She's unconcerned about her reputation, but instead she is overcome with gratitude. And as her tears flow on Jesus' feet, she takes her hair and she wipes those tears or wipes the dirt and the grime away from Jesus' feet with her hair. And then Luke says that she kisses his feet. And the word kiss in the Greek here is a very intensive form. It also appears in chapter 15, verse 20. Luke uses that word to describe the, the overwhelmed father when his, when his prodigal son comes home and how he, he runs to him and hugs him and, and kisses over him in, in gratitude and thankfulness that his son has returned home. It also appears in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, when the Ephesian elders are bidding Paul farewell as he is going back to Jerusalem to carry out the ministry that God has called him to there. They are weeping. They are so overcome with emotion, showing the, the depth of the relationship that exists, the attachment, their gratitude towards Paul for coming and to stay for such a long time to build them up and to encourage them. And so this sinful woman is, is intensely kissing Jesus' feet. And as she is doing so, she is expressing her own gratitude. She's expressing her own joy in response to what Jesus has done for her. And then, of course, the, the big part here is the anointing of his feet with the expensive perfume. The word that Luke uses here is translated as ointment, but really it's an oil, a, a fragrant oil, a fragrant aromatic oil. She brings it in an alabaster jar. These are actually quite common, reading the archaeological record. These were quite common. In fact, the women would oftentimes wear this alabaster jar of, of, of perfume around their neck with some sort of chain or, or cord. This, this particular uh, ointment or perfume was very much like myrrh. Myrrh, you might remember in New Testament, is a very spice, uh, it's a very expensive spice. It was oftentimes used to uh, anoint or to prepare a dead body for burial. 
And part of the reason for doing that was the fragrance of it would overcome the stench of decomposition. So it's very aromatic oil, very fragrant oil. It would have been very expensive as well. In a story that's very similar to this one, another woman named Mary anoints Jesus' head with a, an aromatic oil that is valued at 300 denarii. A denarius is the, the, the day's wage for a common laborer. So 300 denarii would be equivalent to about 10 months' worth of wages. For the average person, that would have been quite expensive. And so she, she breaks the flask and she anoints Jesus' feet in an act of great sacrifice. Again, showing her love and devotion and humility to Jesus. Overcome with gratitude and joy at what Jesus had done for her. So Simon, again the host of the dinner, finds all this offensive. Again, not so much because she is disrupting the meal, but because of her reputation and because Jesus has failed to distance himself from her. He has not rebuked her. He has not told her to stop and to cease from what she is doing. And so Simon gets kind of caught up. This is, this is scandalous what Jesus is allowing here. In fact, Luke records Simon's private thoughts for us in verse 39. He is saying these things to himself. It says that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. We remember that Jesus had the reputation for being a prophet. That was one of the ways in which the people uh, were, they could put Jesus in a category, Right? Who is this guy? He's different from what we're used to. They have a category, category of prophet. Jesus certainly fits in there. Simon knows Jesus' reputation of being a prophet. And so he concludes here that Jesus cannot be a prophet because he doesn't know what sort of woman this is. If Jesus were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. And if he knew what sort of woman this is, then certainly he would have not allowed her to touch him. By the nature of her sin, she would have been considered unclean. And so Simon the Pharisee, who sought to live a separated life, a holy and pious life before God, could not be contaminated by this woman, by such a person as this. So what she is doing to Jesus, Simon views as a great abomination. But Jesus' reaction here to her is quite consistent with the reputation he himself had been building up. Back in chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, and previously in the, the previous passage, chapter 7, verses 31 to 34, Jesus is known for hanging around sinners. He is known for being around them and, and, and cavorting with them and, and developing relationships with them giving himself over to them for their salvation. And so Jesus takes no offense at this woman. Rather, he encourages her and commends her. So instead, in a very surprising twist, instead of rebuking the woman, Jesus instead rebukes Simon the Pharisee. While Simon denies that Jesus was a prophet, Jesus actually proves himself to be a prophet in two ways, right? Remember, Simon says if he knew what sort of woman this is, he wouldn't let her do this. He can't be a prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is. But Jesus shows he does actually know what sort of woman this is. And he knows what Simon is thinking. So he directs his attention to Simon beginning in verse 41. He explains himself. He interprets the situation by using a parable. That parable comes in verses 41 to 43. 
Jesus tells the story of two debtors who owes who owes significant sums to a moneylender. One owes 50 denarii. Again, a denarius is a, a day's wage for a common laborer. So she or he, this debtor, owes about two months' worth of wages. And one owes ten times that amount, 500 denarii, so about 20 months' worth of wages. Almost two years, if you will. Since the denarius is a day's wage for a common laborer, if I can make a, an analogy, if we take minimum wage for a standard work day, eight hours a day, for a six-day work week, which would have been appropriate in a Jewish culture, 50 denarii would amount to a little over $3,400, while 500 denarii would amount to a little over $34,000. I think, judging the church properly, we are mostly middle-class people. So if you think about owing a debt of $3,400, that doesn't feel crushing. It doesn't feel overwhelming, right? It doesn't sound too bad. Inconvenient, yes, but not overwhelming. But we might feel the weight of $34,000 a little bit more severely. That feels, maybe would feel more crushing to us. And what makes this even worse is that both debtors here, both the one who owes little and the one who owes much, cannot pay their debts. One commentator used this analogy. He suggested that we think of having the 50 denarii debt as having a, a car, a debt in a car that we can't make the payment for as opposed to the 500 denarii debt being something similar to a mortgage, right? The debt that we carry on a house. We'd not be able to make our payment. We could, we could feel those. You can see how the one who owes the more would feel the, the more overwhelmed and the more, the more burdened. And yet, in this case, in this parable, in an extreme act of grace, the moneylender cancels the debt of both debtors. The word that's used in verse 42 for canceled in the Greek is the word charizomai. You might be familiar with the Greek word charis, right? Which means grace. This is the verbal form of that word. Charizomai means to show grace. The money lender is canceling the debt. He is showing grace. In fact, this was a technical term in that culture for canceling debt, for remitting debt. So what the money lender here is doing is totally out of character. Why? Because money lenders make their money by lending it out. And not just by receiving it back, but by receiving it back with interest. So he is doing something that is quite extraordinary. He is going above and beyond what we would normally expect. He not only is not going to get interest, he loses his money. He's canceling the debt of both of these debtors. And since he gives no reason for canceling their debts, we have to assume that the money lender is just simply showing unmerited favor. He is showing grace simply to show grace. There is no reason, no motivation why he would cancel these debts. But for these debtors, this would be welcome news. I mean, consider whatever debt you may carry. If someone, if Visa were to call you up and say, hey, we're going to cancel the debt on your credit card, you might feel really excited about that. If your bank called you and said, hey, we're going to cancel your mortgage. I mean, you'd probably be dancing in the streets, right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I mean, you'd be overwhelmed by that grace, by that reality. And so they would welcome this news. Their debts have been canceled. They are freed from this burden. And it is here in verse 42 that Jesus poses the piercing question to Simon. He says, now which of them will love him more? 
That word love in the Greek, in the, me, the Hebrew and Aramaic languages would also, there's no word for thanks in the Hebrew and Aramaic language. So in this culture, there's no specific word for that. So the word for love also brings in the idea of gratitude. The debtor's love is an expression of his thanks for the cancellation of his debt. So Jesus here is also saying at the same time, which of these debtors would be more grateful? And Simon answers correctly, right? The one with the larger debt, the one who felt more burdened, the one who felt crushed by the weight of debt. They would be more, more, uh, they would be the ones who would be more grateful for having that debt forgiven and canceled. So then in verse 44, Jesus shifts from the parable to the interpretation. This sinful woman has showed more love and greater gratitude because she has incurred the greater debt. Her sin had removed her far from God. Her debt was overwhelming and crushing, and she had no ability to pay. But Jesus forgave her debt. And because of that, she responds with this gratitude and this love and this devotion that she shows in Simon's house. In fact, Jesus contrasts the sinful woman's devotion to him Again, signs of her love and gratitude and joy to Simon's lack of hospitality. In verse 44, Jesus says that Simon did not wash his feet when he entered into the house. And while he was not culturally required to do so, certainly the host would have at least provided water for Jesus to wash his own feet. That would have been sort of the basic minimum that he could have done. And yet this sinful woman took on that task of the lowest servant and showed great humility by washing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And then in verse 45, Jesus points out that Simon did not even give Jesus the customary kiss of greeting, right? I grew up in a Hispanic culture and whenever you go in, in that culture, the first thing you do when you greet someone is give them a kiss on the cheek. A lot of cultures do that, right? It's the common way of, of showing a greeting. We might shake a hand or give a hug, but Kissing another person on the cheek was the way of saying hello, saying you are welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here. Simon did not give Jesus the customary kiss of greeting, but this woman has repeatedly and intently kissed Jesus, not on the cheek as a greeting, but on the feet as a sign of humble devotion and overwhelming gratitude. In verse 46, Jesus, Jesus says that Simon did not anoint his head with Oil, that oil there, the word is the uh, word for olive oil, the inexpensive, uh, quite common oil that uh, would be used sometimes even as a lotion. Again, Simon's under no obligation to offer this to Jesus, but it would have been a, a common gesture of hospitality from a welcoming host. Simon provided no olive oil to refresh Jesus as he came to into the home and dined at the table. But this woman, by contrast, anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil at great cost to express her love and devotion to Jesus. And then in verse 47, Jesus interprets the parable for Simon. Basically, he says that this woman is the 500 denarii debtor. Her debts, her sins were many. She was crushed under the weight of her sin. And the debt was so great that she could not repay it. But Jesus, like the gracious moneylender, cancels her debt. He forgives her sin. And because her debt was so great, she loved Jesus so much. Her gratitude 
was extraordinary. She was so thankful that she couldn't stop showing her gratitude to Jesus. We see here her love and devotion to its greatest possible degree. Almost even thinking of this as worship. How did we come to Jesus this morning when we came to worship? Did we come in humility? Did we come in overwhelming gratitude for what he has done for us? Did we come with overwhelming joy and just want to adore him and to love him and to show him that gratitude because of the great debt that he has canceled in our life by forgiving us of our sins? By contrast to this woman, Simon does not love Jesus much. In fact, he probably does not love Jesus at all. He has no gratitude for Jesus. In fact, it seems to me that he's even worse than the 50 denarii debtor. Because at least that debtor had some sin, had some debt canceled and could show some gratitude, could show some love and some joy. Simon does none of these things. He does not even understand who Jesus is. He doesn't even see his own need for Jesus. He lacks self-awareness about his own spiritual condition and he is blind to who Jesus really is. And until he can properly evaluate both of those things, He's cut off from the mercy of of God. This woman has access because she is aware, because she understands, because she has faith. But Simon is cut off. It's at this point after he is interpreting this parable for Simon that Jesus turns his attention to the woman in verse 47. Actually says to Simon first in verse verse 47. Um Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then in verse 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, just to be clear, Jesus does not forgive this woman's sins because of the things she has been doing to him in the house. Right? She's not seeking Jesus' forgiveness at this point. The word for, in verse 47, for she loved much, does not indicate causality. She's not receiving forgiveness because of what she has done. It's actually indicating result that she has, uh, because she has already been forgiven, she is showing much love and gratitude to Jesus. So this isn't a good deed seeking salvation. This is a response to the forgiveness and salvation that she has already received from Jesus. And he reiterates that again to her in verse 47. He says to her, turns to her, directs his discourse to her, your sins are forgiven. He gives her assurance that she has really been forgiven. In fact, the word translated there as forgiven, the verb, in the Greek tense, in the Greek language is in the perfect tense, which means it has happened in the past, but the effects are still experienced and felt in the present. She has already received forgiveness, but now she is continuing to live in the reality of that forgiveness going forward. She has been forgiven, and she continues to live in that state of forgiveness. But how reassuring is it to know that your sins are forgiven? Jesus had already forgiven her sins, but he says it to her again. How many times as Christians... Do we know that our sins are forgiven and yet we are reassured and we are comforted and we are overwhelmed because we hear anew and afresh, your sins are forgiven. 
How many times have you wondered, are my sins really forgiven? How many times have we doubted? Certainly God can't forgive those sins. How many times have we remembered with horror the things that we have done in the past? How many times have we been preoccupied with, with, with guilt and shame for the things that we have done? How many times has the accuser of the brethren thrown our sins back into our face and we're confronted again and again and again by the memory of that shame and that guilt of the past sin? If that is you this morning, if you came this morning struggling under the guilt and shame of sin, hear again the words of our Savior, your sins are forgiven. Those are words of assurance. They are words of pardon. And Jesus is assuring this woman that indeed her sins are forgiven. But in addition to assuring this woman, I think Jesus spoke this to her, but I think Jesus also spoke this for the benefit of the other guests, right? Because they respond to what he says. I think Jesus wants them to know that he has forgiven her too. We see their surprise in verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? They're surprised. This is part of Jesus again revealing himself to them. Who is he? Jesus is one who forgives sins. This happened similarly back in chapter 5. Remember the paralytic that came in through the roof? The friends brought him to Jesus to be healed. But what did Jesus do first? Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven. And then to show that he really had the authority to forgive sins, he raised the man up. He told the man to get up and walk and to go back to his house. But the response of the Pharisees who were there at that time had the same response as these Pharisees here. Who is this who forgives sin? Because in their mind, the only person that forgives sin is God. Jesus is doing something that God himself, that only God himself can do. Who is this man? They come to the similar conclusion here, and Jesus makes the same point. By announcing that this woman's sins are forgiven, he is calling them to acknowledge their own sinfulness, to repent of their sins, to recognize who he is, and to trust in Him so that they might receive the same forgiveness that she has received. Your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus declares the woman's sins not only forgiven, but He notes the role that faith has played in forgiveness. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. This woman hasn't earned her forgiveness by these works of adoration and devotion to Jesus. She has received forgiveness by faith. If this woman's faith that reveals the nature of her trust in Jesus. Again, we don't know what happened to, call, to cause her to trust in Jesus. But she comes to some awareness. Something has happened before this incident. Whether she heard Jesus teach, whether she had a personal interaction, whether she just knows by reputation, something has happened for her to respond in faith to Jesus in this way. And because she was trusted in Jesus, she received his forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive sins. And so he tells her, your faith has saved you. And then he tells her, go in peace. That's the standard way of saying goodbye in Hebrew. It's the prayer that as a person leaves, that God's peace would come upon them and remain with them and give them grace and and, and peaceful life as they go on their way. But Jesus is more than sending this woman away. He means these words to the fullest extent possible. He is sending her to live in God's peace 
that comes with the forgiveness of sins. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our sins are forgiven, we have peace with God. And His peace now comes and rests upon us and abides in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, one of those being peace. Faith brings us into a new relationship with God. In our sins, we are at enmity with God. But Jesus forgives our sins, and so we are reconciled to God, and we now live with Him in peace. Because we have peace with God, the peace of God rests upon us. As we walk in this peace, as we continue to trust in Christ, we live in the full reality that our sins have been forgiven. This woman can walk the rest of her days in peace in the fullest, most comprehensive sense of that term. I've really just gone through the story, haven't I? I haven't made a whole lot of application because it seems to me that it's really apparent. There's a reason why this story is one of the most well-loved in the Bible. Like many of the gospel narratives, this story is a living parable of the gospel itself. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer who forgives sins. Who are we? We're this sinful woman. I like the fact here that Luke doesn't give us her name or even the nature of her sin because we can readily identify with her. Because we are all sinners. We are all 500 denarii debtors. We are sinners with a debt so great and no means to pay it off. But Jesus cancels the debt and forgives the sin. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it, to the cross. This is what Jesus did for you. He came into this world. He lived the life you could not live. He went to the cross as a, an atoning sacrifice. He laid his life down to pay the penalty of your sins that you could not pay. His death satisfied the just wrath of God. And now on the basis of what he has done, your sins are forgiven and you have been reconciled to God. You have eternal life. You have the peace of God. You have the glory of His salvation forever. So no matter what your sin, there is forgiveness. Simply trust Jesus. Turn to Him. Trust Him to save you and forgive you, and He will. For Christians, rest in the fact that you have been forgiven when you continue to sin because God is still working on us. We return to Him and find an inexhaustible supply of forgiveness. His mercies are new every morning. Go and live in His peace. Offer Him your unending love and devotion and gratitude like this woman by living for His glory. You have a chance. Go, I'll put it on my Facebook page later today. Go and find the song by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa called His Mercy is More. It's basically a part of the The wording, I think, comes from this passage. But it reminds us that our sins, they were many. 
But His mercy is more. His mercy is more. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, Your Word is such a mirror. We can look into it and we see ourselves. We see our own condition. We see our sinfulness, our great debt. We see an even greater Savior. We see one whose mercy is more. We see one who came specifically to die for our sins so that we might be forgiven and so that we might continue to walk all of our days in your peace. Lord, help us. I pray for your people this morning who came today under the weight and the guilt of sin, who are burdened by it, who are crushed by it. Lord, we pray that today they might look to you and they might understand that they have assurance of pardon. Help them to repent and to trust in Christ. Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who are not saved this morning, I pray that today they would understand that there is a cure, that there is a balm in Gilead, that there is relief from the shame and guilt of sin, and that it is Jesus and his great forgiveness through his shed blood. Help them today, Lord, by your spirit, turn to you. Help them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus. And Father, as we come to this extraordinary understanding of what you have done for us, may we be like this woman. May we not cease to weep tears of joy, to humble ourselves and to adore you, to kiss your feet, to pour out great ointment, not to receive something from you, but Lord, just as a way of displaying gratitude, there is nothing that we can do for what you have done, but our lives are yours to show in humble adoration and extraordinary devotion that you are a great Messiah, a great Redeemer, a great Savior. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we read, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus came to forgive sins. That was his mission. That was his purpose. And in order to do that, he had to shed his blood. He had to lay his life down as a sacrifice. And in doing so, he paid the penalty that God required so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be reconciled to God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he taught this to his disciples. He tried to illustrate that through what we call the Last Supper. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We come to partake of these elements to remember the forgiveness of sins and to point us ahead to our glorious destiny when we will be with Christ forever and ever. Let us come to the table.